The spirit of performance defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. All right, Sarah, thank you very much. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I am Frank calling in for the judge, Scott Wapner. The financials front and center this hour as a banking crisis takes some new twists and some new turns on both sides of the Atlantic. The investment committee is standing by to break down the entire fallout here. Joining me for the hour, Kerry Firestone, Jason Snipe, Joe Terranova, and Sarad Sethi. First, let's get a check on the markets right now. We're looking at the Dow right now at about just 1% higher, the S&P about half a percent higher, the Nasdaq composite dipping down into the red, the 10-year right now at 3.47, about 40 to 50 basis points lower than it was back on March 10th before all this banking fallout started. And of course, we're closely watching the banks after UBS agreed to buy Credit Suisse for $3.2 billion. UBS shares moving higher right now, as you can see, up more than 3%. However, Credit Suisse deep in the red, down more than 50%. And now we turn our attention back stateside. The regional banks, they're getting a bit of a bounce today, but First Republic, it remains squarely in the crosshairs. That stock's selling off again today following another credit downgrade at Standard & Poor's. Shares of First Republic are now down 84% since the start of March, and we do have some ownership here on the desk, both Surratt and Kerry. You're both in on First Republic. Surratt, you're right here at the New York Stock Exchange. We're going to start off with you. What are you going to do with this stock? Look, the situation is fluid, right? Right now, we know the depositors are safe. And the question is, what does the bank do and who are they going to either merge with, partner with, et cetera? So as equity holders, we're watching. Some of our clients who are kind of risk off, we've taken some of the exposure off. It's a much smaller position for us now. We're not going to add to it. But I think of just watching to see kind of they've got bankers in place. Uh, so you've got option value on it. But at some point, I'm going to make a decision whether I want to keep it or kind of just uh, – uh, you know, get rid of it. Yeah, obviously a big macro event, but I mean, it's hard not to look at here. This stock within the last 52 weeks traded at 174 a share. Now it's below 20 bucks a share. Shocked at all about this dramatic downturn? Yeah, I, I think what happened was once Silicon Valley Bank happened, people turned to First Republic. They've got the exposure on the West Coast. They've got a mismanagement, mismatched balance sheet. So what is the true exposure? Rates coming down a little bit. And then you're just afraid of, am I going to be the last person standing? So, uh, but, but you've seen kind of what it's done, the contagion that spread to other regionals, to other small community banks. So with what is the government going to do here? And that's kind of what people are talking about. Is 250000 enough? FDIC insurance for every bank. Question is, that's probably not the right number, uh, because if you want banks to be around in our communities, people want confidence, not just for the depositors, but you want investors to be in there too. And if investors don't feel safe, 
you're not going to get that. So there, there's going to be some, some really interesting issues that the government needs to sort out if you want a fluid and, and I would also say an environment where lending can happen because right now I could bet you that every risk officer is basically looking at their book and saying, why do I want to lend? Okay, you're seeing money contract and, and really the risk is to, I don't want to give capital out there because if something happens, what do I do? Exactly. Uh, Carrie, you are also an investor in FRC. What's your take right now? So, Frank, we have a very, very small position in this. Uh, we thought that it was worth the chance of buying some last week. Uh, we are, in fact, selling some of it today. And we, we believe that this, uh, this fear factor is really the major driver. Unfortunately, it's, it's true that banks that are in a, a problematic situation with investors, I'm uh, sorry, with depositors who want their money of 250000 out of the bank and into other banks are experiencing, I, I would say it's a pandemic hangover. I mean, there's a fear factor. We have lived through an enormous crisis in the last few years where, you know, we didn't know anything about this virus. Suddenly it was there and it could kill you. And so people went home and stayed home for a couple of years. So now we're being told your deposits aren't safe. And that just waves the flag, the big red flag that everyone says, oh, my God, I have to go and get my money out right away. I'm going to stand in line all day. And that has happened to First Republic. Very unfortunately, they've lost tens of billions in deposits. Uh, and in a situation where the bank was a, a, a good bank, great customer service, clients love the bank and still they took their money. So it's really a, a, a function of what's going on in, with the mindset of depositors and wealthy people in this country who make up the majority of their uh, deposit base has taken out so much that First Republic is really being forced now to look for other um, assets, raise more money. I don't think what they got is enough. They have to raise more money. And so it's a question of at what price can they get more money, either from a buyer or from the public? So, Carrie and Sir, I want to get your take on something for a second. Just getting some news right now. Shares of First Republic are halted right now. Carrie, what's your take on this news? We're obviously working to get some more information, but shares are halted right now. As you can see, frozen right now, down almost 26%. Well, all I can imagine is that they've um, they filed for a, a public offering. I mean, maybe they're selling equity. Maybe they have agreed to sell equity at a certain price to one bank or more banks. Maybe they're selling out the company at a price that reflects where it's trading right now. But, you know, I, yeah. I'm looking straight at the camera, so I can't look at uh, okay. any information. I'm going to give you the headlines. Yeah, I'm going to give you the headlines right now, Carrie. Um, discussing converting $30 billion in First Republic deposits into capital and infusion, sources say uh, First Republic talks center on industry-led effort to boost capital and J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon leading banks in a fresh effort to shore up First Republic Bank. Surat, what's your take as a shareholder? You did mention you're trimming, but what's your take right now still in, in that position? Look, I mean, it'll be interesting to see what the equity's worth and, and if people like Jamie Dimon are coming together. Because, look, this is a bigger thing than just one bank. This is right. confidence in the banking system. And if you end up not supporting all the other banks, you're going to end up with four or five banks. And, and it's going to become a very sleepy industry that's going to be completely regulated like utilities. So I think it's in the best interest of those big banks to say, hey, we need some of these smaller competitive banks around too. Otherwise, you're just going to be, you're going to have the handful of the Bank of America's, J.P. Morgan, Morgan Stanley, Goldman, and, and none of the other banks will want to do that because 
they're not diversified enough to have other businesses that can help them. So yeah. I do think in this case, you want confidence back in the system. Hey, you think Jamie Dimon wants investors to invest in JP Morgan as well. So at the end of the day, I think that's what they're looking at. So, Joe, I want to bring you in here. I mean, Jamie Dimon now getting involved, a fresh effort to shore up the bank. I, I think a lot of people thought that 30 billion capital infusion was supposed to be the effort to shore up the bank. What's your take on this? Yeah. So my background on Wall Street comes from the futures market. Um, I've seen the, the price of sugar go to one cent. I've seen crude oil go negative. So I am not by nature strategically looking at distressed assets. That's just not what I do. Right. I actually do the opposite. I look to where I could find confidence. When I look at this situation right now, what I think to myself is that the U.S. Treasury made $15.15 billion in the wake of 2008 with the bank bailouts. We heard this morning the FDIC has equity appreciation rights at $6.54 on New York Community Bank. The FDIC in one week is going to turn a profit. So with all that collective information, I'm not looking at the potential for distressed banks that could be acquired. I'm looking towards the banks and whether it's, and you can see the way that Warren Buffett and uh, Berkshire Hathaway is trading today, or is it some of the, the, the big four or even maybe a USB or a PNC or a Truist, some of the larger regionals, which one of these banks will be able to take advantage? I don't want to call it a sweetheart deal. I think a lot of people have called it that already, but certainly very favorable terms to do what? Right. To strengthen their deposit base and then also buy distressed assets on pennies on the dollar. Look at who's going to potentially be the ones to take that advantage opportunity. So really quick, I want to take a look. It looks like First Republic is back trading. It's actually traded lower since we just hit these headlines. Again, for the audience just joining us, um, sources say there's discussions to convert the $30 billion in First Republic deposits into a capital infusion. J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon leading banks in a fresh effort to shore up this bank. Um, Jason Snipe, don't want to forget about you down there in Philadelphia. What's your take on what we're seeing here with First Republic? Yeah, so Frank, um, I mentioned on the show last week that I, I sold the KRE uh, about two weeks ago, really right after the SVB news and $42 billion running out of the bank. Um, so for me, I, I, I don't think uh, the basket is worth owning. Uh, there's obviously contagion spreading across a lot of these regionals. I mean, first, first, first and foremost, I think Treasury management has is, is, is been on the docket. You know, the cost of capital going forward, I mean, interest rates riding. Uh, pressure on net interest margins, I think, is also uh, a piece of the story. And I think, you know, regionals are definitely a bedrock uh, of this economy. But my concern as well, as it relates to a lot of these banks, uh, is loan demand. Loan demand is slowing, and, and it is a lag effect. And you know, a third of 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 the loans come from regionals, and that that's a concern for me. You know, and, and, and as everyone has already mentioned, the confidence you know in these names. What is the incremental cost of of bringing depositors back to some of these names? That's that's also concerning for me. So I decide to step away and look to other areas of the market. Yeah, I think a lot of other people step in way. I want to point out right now. First Republic shares are halted again. They were brought back to live trading just very briefly. You can see they, they moved to the downside about two more percent. Now halted again. Kerry, um, we first came to you when the news first broke. I want to come back to you now that you've had a minute to digest. What's your take on what we're seeing again? CEO of uh, J.P. Morgan, Jamie Dimon, now involved in a fresh effort to shore up First Republic. Well, I guess the, the first uh, message is that they definitely don't want this bank to fail. 
uh, and they're trying to find a way to keep it alive. But the $30 billion that they infused last week doesn't appear to be sufficient. And that's what the market is reflecting as it prices it down. And that's why they're coming together to try to do something else, because the amount of deposits that have left, again, because of the run on the bank, so to speak, wasn't sufficient. So I I think this is a story that's unfolding in real time. We don't know where this is going to end, but it shows the fragility of the banking industry right now and how everyone's trying to come together and solve this problem, which is really, you know, a a significant one. All right. First Republic shares trading again, now down about 36 percent. So, I'm going to come back over to you. Um, Kerry's saying it's not sufficient, but just earlier today, Wolf came out with a note saying there was meaningful value in FRC's operating accounts, even if uninsured deposits outflow. So the question is, was the original 30 billion infusion, was that sufficient for sentiment or was that sufficient enough for the fundamentals of this bank? I think part of both. Uh, I do think that if equity investors get scared, they're going to do what Jason did, which is sell first and ask questions later. And I think where you are in the capital structure matters. I think for Jamie Dimon and the rest of the banking world is, you know, as Carrie said, if you don't want to let this one fail, because if you do, then there's going to be another one after this. And there's a domino effect. So we really have to kind of understand what is really going on and what amount of capital is really sufficient to do that. And I think that's where kind of all of them are, are grappling with to say what works for an investor in terms of keeping the equity there and then what works is getting it to be another bank. And maybe the solution is, and I'm not saying it is, is for first of all to be part of another bigger bank. So, so Joe. Oh, I'm sorry, yeah. Sarah. Didn't mean to cut you off. So, Joe, I want, I want to come over to you. I'm not saying there's a connection. I'm not saying there's a direct connection to Credit Suisse right now. But what we saw with Credit Suisse, um, obviously, they don't want to call it a bailout. They want to call it, a, I believe, a commercial solution. But we're seeing the bondholders of Credit Suisse get hurt. Is that possibly sending shockwaves over across the pond and making people who are investors of this bank worried about just holding the shares they already have? Again, we said they're down 84 percent month to date. Is that issue also just creating more doubt about the financial security over here in the U.S.? Look, I I think the entirety of the last, call it 10 days, uh, has significantly dented and and damaged confidence. Um, I I don't think it's broken confidence, but it's damaged it enough where it's very difficult to restore it. And in the case of UBS and Credit Suisse, I don't know, did we really do very much to restore confidence? We, We had a higher market early in the morning. Um, that's, that's, that's a moment in time that's doing nothing more than having a little bit of a mean reversion from what we saw last week where you sold banks and you bought tech stocks. Confidence is very difficult to restore. It doesn't mean that the market has to decline precipitously. It really could mean that the market just continues to do what it's doing, which is running in place. But this loss of confidence, I think it's the biggest single element that, that regulators central bankers and CEOs are going to have to wrestle with in the coming months. We will restore it because that's ultimately what we always do. But the loss of confidence is is something that you can't wash away with a potential deal in which UBS clearly is is taking advantage of what's nothing more than a fire sale liquidation. I want to circle back on this breaking news. Uh, Shares of First Republic Bank down now about 36 percent. They've fallen about 10 percent since we got headlines that J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon is leading banks in a fresh effort to shore up first uh, FRC. 
Um, there's talks right now about converting $30 billion in First Republic deposits into a capital infusion. It's a story we're going to continue to watch um, all day long. Surratt and Kerry are both First Republic shareholders, so we might have to come back to you about this. But we also want to turn our attention to another banking story right now. We're talking about New York Community Bank. It's surging right now on news. It is buying most of Signature Bank, which failed a week ago. We want to bring in our Jenny Harrington. We're going to phone a friend right now. She owns New York Community Bank Corp. Joins us over the phone. Jenny, what's your reaction? Well, my reaction is specific to New York community, and then it's also broad. But on the NYCB side, I think it's fascinating. I did a call with my clients last week where I said, look, I'm pretty sure I'm going to need to sell this. I'm pretty sure that regulation is going to come in and really cripple smaller banks. And here I wake up this morning. Actually, I saw it before I went to bed last night and thought, oh, my God, the game has changed for New York Community Bank. So this goes back to the previous conversation where Surat and Joe were saying, like, it's really haves and have-nots, right? And one bank's loss is going to be another bank's gain, and that's exactly what this is. So you see Signature Bank, it's hugely accretive to New York Community Bank's earnings. They're going to be up 20% from this. Their total book value is going to increase by 15%. This is one of the interesting things, too, that I think is really insightful. So New York Community Bank just closed on their Flagstar deal. That took nearly two years to get done. This thing with Signature went down in, I think, three or five days. And it's an enormous vote of confidence by the regulators. So they're strengthening their deposit base, they're reducing their reliance on higher cost wholesale borrowings, they're paying down their debt with the $25 billion of cash, they're getting 130 private bankers who bring in these really low-cost or non-interest-bearing deposits, and the deal is capital neutral, so there's no need to raise equity. So I think it's like a fascinating thing to watch this juxtaposed against First Republic today. Yeah, one quick question, Jenny, while we have you. We're showing the dividend yield at 7.84%. Do you think that plays a factor at all in the investor interest in here? Because obviously the banking sector is being seen as a little bit shaky right now. No, I think right now, like even last week for me, I was presuming that things were going to get bad for them and that the dividend was off the table. I think this is a statement on the regulator's vote of confidence, earnings being accretive, total book value going up. Um, And I just think it's really indicative of what I think is going to come, where we're going to, where, you know, it's interesting. Frank, can I just digress for a nanosecond on this? Digress. Oh, okay, thanks. So I started in the business in 1994 at a bank interest stock hedge fund, and that was at the beginning of this bank interest stock merger boom, where, where everyone was combining with everyone. And fast forward 29 years, and there's still way, way, way too many banks out there. And to, I think it was either Sarah or Joe earlier who was saying, you know, we might be done with, if, if the banking industry consolidates, we might have four or five banks, they'll be sleepy, they'll be regulated like utilities, there'll be a handful you know, of big banks. I'm not sure that's not the way to go. And that really started 29 years ago, yet it hasn't made the progress that it probably should have. So I look at this as maybe something indicative of the future where we are going to see the bigger and more stable banks really gobble up the smaller ones. All right, Jenny Harrington, we've got to have to leave the conversation there. By the way, a lot of people agree with you. Wedbush calls this a sweetheart deal. Uh, KBW oh, says yeah. uh, popping accretion when it comes to EPS at rock bottom valuation. Jenny Harrington, thank you very much. All right, we're going to turn our attention back to First Republic Bank. Shares now down 46%. Joe, i got to come back over to you. I mean, we're seeing dramatic moves lower as we see some of the big names in finance trying to help this bank out. And clearly there's more assistance on the way, or at least it appears to be, according to sources. Listen, you know, it's, 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 as I said before, it's, it's very difficult to arrest a asset that's in distress. And it's even more difficult to do it in the middle of a trading session. 
So I'm somewhat surprised about the announcement in the middle of a trading session. To me, it would have been more prudent to do this before the open or after the market closes. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a significant challenge. I'm not very sure why someone would step in and buy shares of this company without really having further knowledge of exactly what the details are in this announcement. I think that's a fair assessment. We see the shares fall 20% in the matter of what, two or three minutes following these headlines. So very quickly, um, concerning for you as, as a shareholder to watch a stock fall precipitously like this? It is, but then I go back to next week, to last week, and the stock was like a roller coaster. I mean, it was up, you know, 30, 40% within minutes, and then it was down. So. I think we just don't know what's going on, so it's hard to speculate. Right. You know, could it be a potential equity deal at a certain price? Is it above where it is now? We right. don't know. So, you know, I think you're getting people saying, let me just sell and I'll ask questions later right. or, you know, to that point. One thing we know is going to happen, the Fed's going to make a decision this week. That's one thing we know. And the question is, how does this FRC <laughs> drama impact that as the Fed gears up for this critical meeting that's becoming increasingly critical? So I, I want to just toss it back to you guys. Does this FRC drama, especially these moves that we see in this stock today, um, falling about 20 percent in a matter of minutes, does this reach the Fed? Does this influence their decision at all? So I don't think any of us know what they're going to do. I think if the market stays where it is right now, that allows the Federal Reserve the opportunity to take the 25 basis point rate hike. Do I believe that the Federal Reserve has a strong degree of comfort and confidence in what they should do? No. I don't think they know any more than any of us what they should be doing in this environment. I've said it that I believe they will pause after this meeting. I still believe that to be true. I think whatever they do at this meeting, they're going to be criticized. They're either going to be John Claude Trichet in 2011 or Arthur Burns in the 1970s. Trichet raised rates in the middle of a debt crisis, and Burns was not quick enough to fight against inflation. I think they will be criticized no matter what they do on Wednesday. All right, watching the markets right now. Still a bit of a mixed picture. The Nasdaq in the red. Jason Snipe, uh, FRC, the drama that we're seeing here, do you see that having a big impact on the Fed? Or do you believe that there's other factors that are weighing more heavily on their decision? I think the Fed's in a precarious position. I think I, I agree completely with Joe here. I mean, we saw some inflationary dally last week. CPI was pretty much in line. Supercore, however, uh, was ex- accelerated faster than it, in, in February than it did in January. PPI uh, was slower, uh, was softer numbers, and that was due to food prices uh, decelerating. But, you know, these events are deflationary. They absolutely are. The SVB news, to your point, the First Republic news. Um, so I think the Fed is in a difficult spot, and I agree with Joe. Whether they hike or they, or they slow or they don't do anything, um, I, I, I think they, they, they will be under some, some criticism. And, and I turn to the ECB as well. The ECB raised 50 basis points last week. And, you know, I, that was still viewed as a dovish move just because they didn't talk about uh, further hikes going forward. So this is going to be a tough move, 50-50 split. Uh, but I do think they do move 25 basis points and then likely won't do something, make any moves for some time. All right, Kerry, we're going to give you the last word on this. By the way, the KRE now 
just up over a half a percent. When we started the show, it was up about 2%. Obviously, First Republic weighing on that ETF. Uh, Kerry, what are, you, what are you taking away from what we're seeing with FRC? Shares falling about 20% in just a few minutes, following news that uh, J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon and others are trying to, again, shore up this bank. How do you think this weighs on the Fed's decision this week? I think it should have an impact on their decision. You know, if it was 50-50 that they would do nothing or raise 25, I think the odds of do nothing go up. I mean, it shows that higher interest rates obviously contribute to the mismatch between what uh, what banks are carrying on their uh, deposit side and the liabilities. And you can't ignore that. They have to understand that this increase in rates has an effect on borrowing everywhere or what banks are promising people that they're they're paying them higher interest rates and their deposits long term are not getting those rates at all. So, I you know I I, I think it's going to move them a little bit more toward the no hike uh, decision at this meeting. All right, certainly something to watch. Here's the First Republic now down about 45 percent. All right, coming up, the other big story we're following at this hour: more layoffs for big tech. Amazon announcing additional cuts. We'll discuss the state of the sector coming up next on halftime. Stay with us. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Visit ODFL.com to learn more. Hi, I'm Ben Rizzuto, wealth strategist at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of futures. At Janice Henderson, we are committed to helping you invest in a brighter future for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. All right, welcome back to Halftime Report. A developing story we're still following. Amazon is lower after the company announced further job cuts. CEO Andy Jassy wrote in a new post saying, quote, as we just concluded the second phase of our operating plan this past week, I'm writing to share that we intend to eliminate about 9,000 more positions in the next few weeks, mostly in AWS, that's Amazon Web Services, PXT, Advertising, and Twitch, this was a difficult decision, but one that we think is best for the company long term. That's the end of the quote there. Today's announcement follows an earlier round of layoffs that began in November and extended into January, which affected more than 18,000 employees. Jason Snipe, I'm going to come over to you. You do own Amazon. What's your take on this latest round of job cuts for Amazon? So my perspective is simple here. You know, Amazon hired 746,000 uh, people through the pandemic. So 18,000 uh, headcount uh, losses earlier this month, announcement, and then 9,000, uh, as you mentioned, today. Uh, so, so for me, of course, you know, cost cutting is, is very important for these mega cap tech stocks. You know, I, I look at Amazon and I look at the, the movement from products to services, you know, in terms of, in terms of the business mix and, and where folks' spending power is going. So I, I think this is a little blip, in, blip in, the, in the big scheme of things, and I don't think it's a major announcement here. So I think there's more room for them to grow. You know, there was an EPS miss, and there was, they, they, they beat on revenue last quarter, but they, they need to work on the balance sheet here. 
Yeah, Jason, I just want to flesh out what you're saying, just to be clear. Um, Amazon did hire 746,000 people during the pandemic. So obviously the people losing their jobs isn't a blip, but it's a, it's a minor, uh, it's a fraction of the people that they hired during the pandemic. Surat, you also own Amazon. What's your take on this? The latest tech company to cut jobs. We've seen tens of thousands of tech jobs cut. I think Amazon's a little bit different situation. Um, I, I do think they've got pressure on their businesses if you look at cloud and you look at retail. And it is a true show me story at this point because it's not one of the cheap stocks that's trading at 12, 18 times earnings. It's, it's still close to 40 times earnings. So they need to show rationalization. They need to show all the investments they've made over the last couple of years and the last five years are really come to fruition. So I think it's a good step. I think that, you know, it's unfortunate to lose jobs, but it's really the efficiency. That's the word that Meta is using. It's your return of invested capital. And it's, it's really the show me. How are you going to actually make money in what we are seeing is a decelerating environment. You know, you're, you're bringing up AWS. I want to ask you about this too, Joe. We have a graphic right now. This is from Oppenheimer's data. The market share of AWS, if you look back at 2016, they had about three quarters of the global market share. Now that market share has fallen down about 50% when it comes to cloud infrastructure services, which AWS provides. And they have a rising competitor in Azure with ChatGPT. Are you worried that these cuts are coming at the wrong time where they're focusing on efficiency when maybe they need to focus on competition? Well, I think it's a combination. When you've hired 700,000 people, you've still got enough people there. But the question to your point is, if you're losing market share at what price, right? Because it's going to be margin pressure. And, And I think you saw Oracle kind of talk about in their earnings call. They're increasing their cloud. So it's not just Microsoft. It's Oracle. It's a few other, Google's in there, right? So you got a few other players in there on a space that they owned. So that's where I kind of get a little worried. Joe, I'm going to give you the last word. Carrie, I want to come to you really quick. You own Amazon as well. Yeah, we do. And and I would say the following, we've had a lot of good comments, but if you look at this year's uh, price to earnings multiple, it's over 60. Next year was 39. It's on the way down because they're cutting headcount and they'll probably cut more costs. They understand how important it is to the market and to the um, the investors who are considering their stock. And, you know, think about all the people with their stock options. And this stock has really been a very poor performer for about two years now. So they're trying to do everything they can to to rationalize and become more efficient. And this is a step in the right direction. Joe, the job cuts are coming in the most profitable division of the company. That is critical to understand. To your point, it's an attempt to press, uh, to protect margins. There is without question a read through into the economy. Consumer is weakening and enterprise spending is contracting. Right. And it's evident given the corporate actions from Amazon and others in technology. Technology's in a recession, Frank. That's clear. It's been a recession for the last six months. That doesn't mean their stock prices have to go down further because, candidly, they were first in. They already priced in a contraction within the industry. So there might be a degree of resiliency, but the efforts are signaling something more about the economy and the corporate environment. All right, certainly something to watch. We're going to continue to watch Amazon stock today. But right now, we want to turn our attention to the European markets just closing for the day. For the day. Let's get to our Juliana Tattlebaum, live in London with much more on the European close. Juliana. 
Frank, good morning. Well, we started out the trading session deep in the red, but sentiment turned positive around mid-morning, and we've been climbing ever since. So the stock 600 closing about 1% higher, and it has been a broad-based rally. Every region, every sector moving higher over the day, including the European banks. That index gaining more than 1%. UBS has been a huge turnaround throughout the day. Uh, it started down double-digit percent early in the trading session, but actually ending about 1.5% higher. Uh, we, of course, heard from the UBS chairman yesterday when the Credit Suisse UBS deal came through that this acquisition, in his words, is attractive for UBS shareholders and, the, and preserves the value left in the business while limiting downside exposure for UBS. Now, speaking to investors in the market, there doesn't seem to be a lot of conviction in the trade taking place today, but rather at the margin, the UBS takeover of Credit Suisse is seen as reducing uh, the risk of contagion within the European banking sector. Away from the banks, we've got basic resources, the best performing sector, healthcare on the downside was the laggard, but still ending the day higher. Guys? All right, Juliana, thank you very much. Up next, the new ETF jumping off the banking crisis. We will explain, but first, as we had to break, a message from Heineken USA CEO Maggie Timoney as CNBC celebrates women's heritage. Whether male or female, in an, any room, I think allyship is really important. And allyship is that someone is advocating on your behalf when you're not in the room. And I think women, we need to step up and do that more, not only for the people that we know and care about that work together with us, whether they be it male or female. So I think allyship is something that I, I take to my heart and take it very personally to ensure that I am the voice of the others who are not in the room. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. Welcome back to Halftime. I'm Contessa Brewer. Here are your headlines. Amid expectations that former President Donald Trump could be indicted this week in Manhattan, Republicans in Congress are asking Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg to testify. In a letter obtained by NBC News, they accuse him of, quote, what plainly appears to be a politically motivated prosecutorial decision, end of quote. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has broken his silence on Trump's possible indictment, accusing Bragg of being a... Soros-funded prosecutor with misplaced priorities. I don't know what goes into paying hush money to a porn star to, to secure silence over some type of alleged affair. I just, I can't speak to that. But what I can speak to is that if you have a prosecutor who is ignoring crimes happening every single day in his jurisdiction, and he chooses to go back many, many years ago, 
to try to use something about porn star hush money payments, you know, that's an example of pursuing a political agenda. Lawyers for Trump are citing interviews with the foreperson of the Georgia grand jury that investigated potential election interference in a motion to throw out the panel's report and stop the Fulton County District Attorney's investigation there. Frank? Contessa, Contessa Brewer, thank you very much. We appreciate it. All right, another check on shares of First Republic. They are now down about 40%. They've been halted several times for volatility. The Wall Street Journal reporting. J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon is leading talks with other bank CEOs over fresh efforts to stabilize the troubled bank. Uh, again, I want to correct myself right now. Shares of First Republic down about 35%. Also watching the KRE down uh, up, excuse me, about 1%, but well off of its highs today. Obviously, First Republic, one of the holdings in that ETF. All right, the bank drama now having an impact in the ETF world. Let's get over to Bob Pisani with today's ETF Edge. Bob. Hello, Frank. You know, the fallout from the Silicon Valley bank debacle continues. Regional banks are bouncing back today, but most are still down more than 30% in the last two weeks. Not surprisingly, the ETF industry is moving quickly with new products to address all this confusion. In response to the banking crisis tomorrow, Roundhill will launch a new big bank ETF. Dave Matza is the chief strategy officer over at Roundhill Investments. He's joined us now with more. Dave, you, uh, congratulations. You move with stunning speed to capitalize on this banking crisis. What is in this big bank ETF you're launching tomorrow? Well, Bob, in fact, what's exciting about these ETFs is what you're not going to find. You're not going to find smaller banks. You're not going to find regional banks. And in fact, when it comes to financials, you're just going to find six stocks, which are the six largest and most liquid U.S. listed banks. And so that's Bank of America, Citigroup, J.P. Morgan, Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, and Wells Fargo. And these are the, uh, the stocks that actually have the ability to benefit from this crisis and not just be whipped around like we're seeing many of the names such as First Republic today. You have six of the largest banks here. This is going to launch tomorrow. You know, Dave, I've known you a long time. I marvel at how quickly the ETF industry can capitalize on hot investing trends. You put this together in a week, essentially. We saw this, though, in the past. We saw this with pot ETFs, thematic tech ETFs, crypto. Uh, and investors pile in when you've got a hot topic, and you've got a hot topic right now. But these hot topics often underperform a year later. Can, can you make a case why is now a good time, for example, to invest in banks, given all the increased regulation and the higher costs we're going to see in the, in the coming months? Well, you raise a good point. There's often um, uh, a focus on the ETF industry that it's uh, just running to the hot top. But in this case, we're talking about six large banks. This isn't a thematic fund. This is a better way to express a view on the fin on financials. And in fact, the concentrated nature of this particular ETF that gives exposure just to the banking sector um, is really what's exciting about this. And the ability to, to bring this to the market in a short period of time with tomorrow's launch um, is emblematic of this fact. And what we're seeing yeah. is investors are turning away from smaller banks and focusing on those that may actually benefit because of right. the uncertainty. You know, in a move that's kind of reminiscent of what Kathy Woods has been doing, you're also planning to release a suite of ETFs that have very concentrated exposure in other areas. You're going to launch a big tech ETF uh, that sounds like, uh, you know, something Kathy Woods might have done, a big airlines ETF, a, a big defense uh, ETF. Why are concentrated bets a hot topic right now? Is that what the investing public wants, do you think? Yeah, as you noted, I've been working with uh, ETFs for a, a long time now, and I think the marketplace has been asking, actually, for more precise exposure. Um, what we've seen over the years is that in, in, 
exposures in ETFs can be diluted, right? Uh, every cloud computing ETF had exposure to Microsoft and Amazon. But at the end of the day, what's been missing is the ability for investors and traders to have that precision, which is one of the recall marks of ETFs from their start 30 years ago. And whether we're talking about big tech, big airlines, big de defense, or the launch of Big B tomorrow, we're offering the precision and focusing on the five stick socks that really matter for that particular yeah. industry. And again, that big bank ETF launching tomorrow. Now, we're going to have much more coming up on ETFs and the bank banking crisis that's coming up on ETF Edge, 1.10 p.m. Eastern Time. Dave's going to be joined by Greg Basick. He's the CEO of Access Investments. Todd Rosenblum is the head of research at Vetify. That's ETFEdge.cnbc.com. Frank, back to you. Bob, great stuff as always. Thank you very much. Straight ahead, our call of the day, a mea culpa on one consumer staple stock getting an upgrade today. Joe and Surratt, they own it. This is our chart of the day, too. Plus, how the rest of the committee is positioned in on the sector. Halftime, back right after this. Stay with us. All right, welcome back to Halftime Report. Let's get to our call of the day. Bernstein upgrading Pepsi, saying they are, quote, throwing in the towel on their underperformed thesis. Joe, you own this one. Well, I, you know, I think, I think the viewers and investors have to get comfortable with these types of stocks. These are staples. They mm -hmm. focus on selling products, which are necessities, which in this environment I think is warranted. Now, in the case of Pepsi itself, the company has done a fantastic job, not only in the balance sheet management, but also the diversification of its product, not just carbonated beverages. There's the snack business. And the revenue growth is there. So you think about this as a consumer staple company, you say to yourself, okay, the revenue growth is probably muted low to mid single digits. This is a company that over the last two years is averaging 10% revenue growth. That's very strong, very unusual. It's a company I think you want to own. Yeah, also strong pricing power in North America last quarter. Surat, you own Pepsi as well. I, I do. And, and, you know, people think of Pepsi and they're like, oh, it's a beverage company. It's a snack food company as well. Right. And they have things coming in the home and they're raising prices. They're looking at costs. They're rationalizing costs. Input prices are coming down. Energy prices are coming down. And you're going to get a tailwind eventually when the dollar starts getting weaker. So a very well run company in an, in an environment also where it's defensive. Right. You're looking for secure earnings. And that's why this is a cold staple company. Right. Right. think people are going to buy these, especially because they like the brand. Yeah, you mentioned it's a snack food company, uh, PepsiCo, maker of Doritos, for example. Jason Snipe, what's your take on this call? Yeah, so I don't, I don't own Pepsi directly, but I, but I do own Target and Costco. And, and for me, as it, as it relates to the consumer, I think these are consumer calls. And, and the Staples uh, arena for me is a bit expensive, but if I look to Target, Target had a nice beat on, on EPS, and they're really starting to manage their inventory better going forward. They're, they're trying to get back to 6% margins, which I think is going to be difficult to do in, in, in guiding through this environment. And then, and then Costco, you're seeing evidence of trade down, but they had a solid quarter as well. Both names are up 8 and almost 7% respectively year to date. But my concern is just on the consumer. We talk about the resiliency of the higher end uh, consumer, but I, but I do see some weakness in the lower end. And, and that's why for me, um, some of these names are concerning. Yeah, I mean, you know, the consumer is definitely strained, but it's hard to believe that you don't have enough money for a bag of Frito-Lays. All right, coming up next, Mike Santoli joins us now for his Midday Word halftime. We'll be right back. All 
All right, welcome back to Halftime Report. Senior Markets Commentator Mike Santoli joins us now with his midday word. And Mike, got to imagine you're watching the NASDAQ right now in the red today, the other indices in the green following a really big week for the NASDAQ last week. Yeah, so I see it as just a little bit of a half step back uh, of the extremes we got to last week in terms of outperformance by the NASDAQ 100. Microsoft down 3% today. Not for any Microsoft reason, just like it wasn't up for any Microsoft reason last, uh, you know, 10% or whatever it was last week. Um, it's really the go-to for, it's AAA rated. There's only two AAA rated companies in the S&P 500 anymore. And um, uh, you don't have to worry about China and everything else as much as with Apple. So that being uh, set aside, I think the market is kind of calm and steady, but not relaxed. Because it's really more just kind of, uh, stepping gingerly, the S&P 500 spent the entire day between the range we were in last Thursday and Friday, right? So we're just kind of kicking around the same area. I do think it's a positive that we're staying resilient and afloat as opposed to NASDAQ goes down, everything can't rally against it. So I think it's a, it's a sort of a half positive right here because we're still in Fed vigil. We still have a 50-50 proposition in terms of what's going to happen on Wednesday. And then I'm interested to see if the market really cares that much if that's a big swing factor in the outlook from there. Because to me, 25 basis points one way or the other shouldn't necessarily matter. But the message might be taken differently. Yeah, the sentiment might matter. Also, one other thing I want to hit, hit with you, uh, Amazon shares down more yeah. than 2% following a layoff, really breaking a trend. Usually we see these layoffs, the stock pops. We have seen that. Um, I think with Amazon, it's less of a clean cost reduction goes to the bottom line type story the way it was with Meta uh, and with some of the other companies. Alphabet might be one of those. Uh, so I do think it's much more. Amazon's really not earned back the benefit of the doubt. It's had a bad two years in terms of the stock performance. So I guess that's why you're not getting also 9,000 jobs. It's crazy to say is not huge relative to the overall employee and cost base of Amazon. Yeah, cer certainly relative. All right, yeah. Mike Sintoli with the Midday Word. Thank you very much, Mike. All right, Grab My Trades up next. Halftime, right back after this. All right, welcome back to Half. It's time now for Grade My Trade. First up, we got one for Carrie. Mel bought more shares of United Health at 490. What would you grade this trade? Well, I'll give you a B plus. I would give you a better grade, but stock's down from there. So I think it reminds me a little bit of Pepsi. It's a steady earner, trades for about the same multiple, 21 times earnings, a lot of cash flow, high ROE, higher than anyone in the industry. And I think this is the sort of name that will do well in a difficult environment. All right, next up for Jason. Colin bought Arista Networks on January 23rd for 115. What would you grade his trade? Got to give Colin an A-plus here. I think we're trading around 164. They had a really nice quarter, beat on the top and the bottom, and raised the guide. It was a record quarter. I think this name really benefits from a decentralized labor force, so I really like this name here. All right, final trades. Those are coming up on Halftime. Don't want to miss it. Stay with us. All right, welcome back to Halftime. Before today's final trades, we want to highlight Kerry's new article on CNBC.com. It's titled, This is What's Working in Today's Market and What Should Keep Working. You can find it at cnbc.com slash pro. And speaking of pro, you can join me for a special CNBC Pro Talk today at 3 p.m. Eastern. I'm speaking with T. Rowe Price Portfolio Manager David Giroux. Go to cnbc.com slash pro talks. All right, time now for your final trades. Carrie, your first up. 
Wabtec, it's an ultimate beneficiary of infrastructure spending, locomotives, high-speed rails, sells for a reasonable market multiple, and we think this is the kind of name that should work in this market. Jason? Corteva, nice, nice beat on the top and the bottom line, 11% organic growth, strong demand for agricultural commodities. I like this name here. Joe? WW Granger, this is a stock that's been working for quite some time. Strong fundamentals, strong technicals, getting a little bit of a pullback opportunity to finally buy it. Surat, you got the last word. Uh, I like Morgan Stanley. This is a classic example of a company that's going to do well when all the other banks are not. They're well capitalized and great wealth management business. All right, that does it for halftime. The exchange starts right now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. If you're on a GLP-1, you're probably loving the results. You look good. But how do you feel? How about the stomach issues? Loss of muscle mass? Lacking energy? All of those side effects can take a toll. So now what? The answer is GNC. We have solutions that can help address those side effects and make sure you don't get knocked off your path. Because when it comes to living healthy, we're all about it. And that includes keeping you going on your GLP-1 journey. GNC.